this broadcast of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. For this episode, we are delving into the thoughts behind the artwork of photographer Wendy Eatwald. One of her first projects as a working artist was right here in Letcher County in 1979, where she worked with school children to help them capture their lives on film. The project became the book Portraits and Dreams, published in 1985. From there, she traveled the world, tweaking and replicating her process in many other communities. In 2012, Ewald, along with Apple Shop filmmaker Elizabeth Barrett, was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship for Creative Arts and Photography. She and Barrett collaborated on a sequel to Portraits and Dreams, called Portraits and Dreams, A Revisitation. What does it mean to photograph a community not originally your own? Ewald took that question seriously and was very open about her journey to the answer. You will also hear a third voice, guest host Kate Fowler, the director of the Appalachian Media Institute. So let's get started. I'm really excited to welcome Kate Fowler as our guest host and photographer Wendy Ewald with us today. And I want to tell you a little bit about Kate because you'll be hearing her voice. She's going to be asking questions because Kate is also a photographer and I thought it would be interesting to bring in an artist to artist dynamic. (laughs) So Kate Fowler is a documentary filmmaker and photographer from Richmond, Virginia. And she's currently the director of Apple Shop's Appalachian Media Institute. So that's the summer program here at Apple Shop where youth come in and make their own films. And it'll be starting really soon. We're really excited about this year's batch of youth. And before joining the Apple Shop team, Kate worked for the Magnum Foundation as the program director for their Photography Expanded Initiative. And that offers educational programming and events on documentary storytelling at the intersection of social justice and technology. First, I want to welcome you, Wendy, Wendy Ewald. Thank you. (laughs) Could you tell us just a little bit about yourself? What would you like our audience to know about you? Well, the first time I was here in Whitesburg was in 1974 when I had just graduated from college and I came to work with the Apple Shop. I didn't really know what I was going to do at that point, but it was just, you know, a destination and and a way to grow after college. And I lived on Ingrams Creek and I stayed and worked for five years with kids at Campbell's Branch School, Cowan School, and Kingdom Come School. And it was really the place for me, 
and the time for me that I really determined what was going to happen for the rest of my life, really. That I worked with those kids using cameras, but also at some point film, to... Well, to it was really a dialogue between between us. I was very excited about photography. I was 24, I guess, at the time. And I was showing them what I was excited about. So we kind of set up a studio in the classroom and a darkroom and had lots of materials to work with, including photography. And they learned how to develop and print their own film. They even learned how to um, mix their own chemicals from raw chemicals. So, you know, we did the whole thing together, and they were just a wonderful bunch of kids. Not only were they wonderful, but they were extremely talented. And I also learned during that time that some of the kids who were having the hardest time in school were the most talented and, and dedicated to, to what we were doing. So for some of them, it was it was an alternative way to be in, involved in school. And for the ones who, you know, were doing well and were very creative, it, it was a way for them to go forward. Um, so I think that's a really important thing. <laughs> but now, since then, I've gone and I, I went from here and to Columbia, South America, lived in, in a village in the Andes for couple of years and and we worked in much the same way with the kids in the in the fifth grade school there in in a village and then you know from there I I went to India South Africa Morocco Mexico uh, many you know Saudi Arabia many places working with people to well, to document themselves, but also I was photographing at the same time. They were making self-portraits. They were photographing their families. One of the most important things that I've sort of figured out how to do here is they were photographing their dreams or fantasies. So it wasn't only them documenting things, but they began to understand they could create their own reality and photograph it. And for some kids, that was extremely important. One of the things that really struck me about the Portraits and Dreams series, which is the Appalachian series or Eastern Kentucky series, is it captured the, um, it's even hard for me to put into words, but the macabre nature of life here. From the time we were children, we're aware of death and it hangs over us, looms over us, and we're aware of that heaviness that those types of things bring forward. And I think that's even still true for my generation and those after me who live here, still just as true as it ever was. And some of the pieces that the children came up with with the dreams just really struck me because I'd had similar dreams and similar thoughts and similar worries and just to see how that was they captured that so I'm wondering you said that this was the way that you kind of felt out what you were going to be doing for the rest of your life so what about working with the children and the evolving process brought you to that point that this is something you wanted to replicate other places what did you find well it wasn't something I sort of set out to do. 
but I knew I had to to move on in some way at a certain point. You know, I was a single woman living out on the creek and it was hard for me to make that decision because I was so involved in my community where I lived and the kids that I worked with. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just do this somewhere else. It was a way of transitioning for me. But it wasn't something I thought about, you know, this is what I'm going to do, you know, as so ha often happens. And when I went to Colombia, I thought, okay, I'll go to this place where I don't really speak the language very well, and and I'll just see what it looks like visually. I'll just sort of work as a photographer. Well, of course, that didn't happen. <laughs> I ended up doing a book that was that was a, a story, you know, that was a written story with pictures in it. Because I was so taken by the stories here, I thought, well, I should get back to pictures. But then I realized that the stories were just as important to me as as pictures, and you could learn even through translation. You could learn so much from how people use language that a photograph couldn't just hold in and of itself, particularly when it was someone from the outside looking in. And I guess I realized that what I was interested in is not that vision, but to be able to bring out what was the dreams or the reality from the people's perspective, that that was something much more interesting and much more layered. What's always bothered me about photography is the sort of one-dimensional aspect to it, and that I wanted to make images and collages that were layered so you could see people's experiences in a much more deep way than just looking at on the surface. Photography is wonderful because it is a surface art, and it's something you can share with people. But as a maker of a story, I wanted something that was much more complex. So going from Kentucky to Columbia sort of let me understand that I could do that in different places. But when you're talking about the macabre, some people call it violence. <laughs> it's really happened in almost every place I've, I've worked. And I think it's not something that's particular to Eastern Kentucky, but I think it's particular to childhood. We grow up with lots of, um, you know, with lots of anxieties and to try and understand the world around us. And I think that that's one way that children have sort of dealing with their, with their fears. You know, I think we're very much in touch with our fears when, when we're children. That's what comes out in, in, in those dreams or those, you know, those fantasies. Also, kids, of course, are trying to make good pictures, and it's much easier to make a, a good picture that's violent or troubling than it is like a sunny day picture. I mean, that's something that sort of is generic almost. And many times people have, have said to me, well, why are these pictures so violent? I mean, particularly in Mexico, the pictures are quite, you know, from kids in, in, in rural Mexico and Chiapas. They're wonderful pictures. I mean, they're very complicated, the way that they've created these these images. And, you know, they have axes and they, they have fires coming up. So people often think that that's what I ask them to do, to make violent pictures. But really the prompt is is your dreams or fantasies. And that's what comes out. The idea of survival, I think. Where do we fit in 
and how do we survive without parents <laughs> or when we're away from our community, I think is a big deal as a child. And then hearing from afar the goings on of the world without anyone explaining them to you, <laughs> I can see acting out those scenarios as a way to process what you're hearing and try to figure out what it really means. One of the things I know that happened in art history when photography was brought about was painters got really nervous that their medium would then be obsolete. But we've seen that's not true at all. So what do you think it is about photography that you can give almost anyone a camera and eventually they will produce a striking image? What allows that freedom in photography? Well, you don't need, I mean, for kids, for example, you don't need the hand-eye coordination that you need for painting. For music, it's, it's easier. Uh, however, I do think that there are um, prodigies in photography. That doesn't have to do with learning how to use the camera. It's just they have incredible vision, and they can access it through the camera. I mean, the camera is just a tool, which I think is a, it's a really great tool because it is so democratic. So, you know, everybody can, can use it to a certain extent. I love it when people say, oh, I can't take a good picture. <laughs> and I always say, well, no, yes, you can. <laughs> but I think it's a strange time now for photographers because, you know, everybody, not everybody, and I, and I really like to emphasize this, people always say, well, everybody's got their cell phone. Well, not everybody has their cell phone, <laughs> but there is more access. And there's also more emphasis on people taking pictures and being able to use the camera like a photographer does to take many, many pictures and delete. You know, you can't just take your pictures and get them, or you don't take your pictures to the drugstore so much and, and get back whatever is there. But on the other hand, I think that there's a way that people can learn to use the cell phone that's very complex. Some people are natural and they can, you know, f thread their way to making pictures they're in control of. But I think that's basically what I'm interested in when I work with people is that they get control of the tool that they're using so that they can really access what they want to say or what they see. You're still working with this process. Has the fact that most people have taken a picture before at this point, even children, changed the results? I think it's, a, it's been a process all along. When I began working here, I was working with kids who'd really never taken pictures, and, and I've worked in places where people have never, don't even, didn't even know what a photograph was. It's different in different, in, in different situations, and I think it's been a gradual process of change and, um, over the 40-some years that, you know, that I've been doing it. But I think what's, what's happening now with digital, it, it's affected me because I've had to change the way I work. And I mean, not only as a, as, as a person who works with other people, but also as a photographer myself. So, you know, that's been really hard. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I finally, finally found my way, but I, I didn't want to do, you know, work digitally because one of the things what happens when you work with people and you're in a dark room and you, you develop the film, I could teach them the process from, you know, the camera obscura 
what happens with the silver nitrate, and they could understand all that. But I couldn't teach them how digitally all that works, or it doesn't have the same meaning, I, I don't think. So for me, I had to start learning what it was to use a digital camera. Really, it was doing a project I did in, in Israel and Palestine for, I, I worked over like two and a half years with lots and lots of people, that I began to be able to control the way that I worked with them and give them some more guidance, but also understand what they were seeing with the camera, because it's totally different what you see with a digital camera than a film camera, and, and also your limitations are completely different. So that was really interesting, but not fun. So it's you're learning on the job, I guess, yeah. in that way. Yeah. Learning I mean, they, with the people. Absolutely. They had to yeah. bring me up to speed on what was going on. Yeah. yeah. Kate? I'm just really excited to be here, but I was thinking back to when you started here in Appalachia, and I was thinking about how the work in Portraits and Dreams is not dissimilar from the work I had seen outsider photographers come in and make. You know, there's like a pig being slaughtered, there are coal miners coming home from work, and I wanted to know, and this comes from working with youth at AMI, I notice that when young folks tell their community about their issues, people respond differently. And I kind of wanted to hear about the experience and how that book was received here in Eastern Kentucky. That's a good question. I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. I really, because by that time, I it took me five years to find a publisher for it. So, you know, by that time I had gone. When we were working on it, at one point, we sat down, you know, like anybody does. I mean, we had a process like you, you would have if you were doing a book, if a single person was a, doing a book. So the, the kids, we looked at everything. What don't we have um, that's important that's happening in this region? You know, what, what do we have? So we ended up doing things like a church revival and going to church. That was something that we haven't, hadn't gotten, but they thought it was important. But whereas with coal mining... We did that really early on because there was no way that they would have access to that without me, you know, to going underground. I mean, of course, now you could never do that, take a bunch of kids underground. <laughs> <laughs> but it was definitely something that, you know, they talked about, that, you know, that affected them. So anyway, it was important to do. But I know that some people didn't like it because it was a sort of backward look, as some people thought, in this region. You know, as far as the kids themselves and their and their families, it was very important and continues to be important from what I, I hear. Of course, it was a big hit in the photo world. And the, the year it came out, it was named one of the 10 best art books of the year. And uh, it was a revelation. It's one of the reasons I'm here today <laughs> is because of that book. Um, and I also was wondering, when I'm looking at the imagery in that book, and how it was really your first big project out of college, was there something distinct about the Appalachian community that made you want to pick up education and collaboration as a mode of image making? Or had you decided that before you came here? Well, I had already been working in that way. I really started when I was uh, graduated from high school, and I went to work in a First Nations community in Canada. And I had heard about someone doing something similar, and I thought that was a really interesting idea. 
So I wrote my first grant proposal to Polaroid for cameras and film, went up that summer and I photographed and they photographed and I pretty quickly found out that what they were doing was much more interesting <laughs> than what I could do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, and I continued to do that in, in the summers of college. So it, yeah, it was something I was going to do, but I didn't know. I mean, I it got here, I got here and, uh, you know, ended up going and visiting some schools and, and asking if I could come in and the pictures that were incredible that the young people made in, in Canada as well. But what happened here was there was a sustained, you know, I was here working with them for four or five years, some of the same kids. So I was really able to work out, you know, my ideas with them and they could work out what they wanted to do as well over that time. And we included a lot of other things like, you know, filmmaking, we did printmaking, we did, you know, whatever sort of came along. So it was really like a workshop, four-year, four, five-year workshop for us. Yeah, and I see a lot of threads from that workshop in the work that we're doing here at the Appalachian Media Institute at Apple Shop. I mean, when you first introduced uh, the statement about what you would want to share with people here, I just heard a lot of the methodology that we practice now is really built upon that. And I've thought about this a lot because I've been to a lot of lectures and people presenting on social practice and photography and I know I mentioned this to you briefly the other day but the work has really come full circle and it seems like somehow there's this amnesia where people in the photography industry or people in the art industry are forgetting about this whole lineage of work that came first and for me it's been huge because you know, I saw your book and I saw Elizabeth Barrett's films and it was really the thing that kind of drove me through college. And I had an experience early on with photography where I realized the limitations and how dangerous it could be in representing a community. And I stopped for a long time and I just couldn't produce. And then I saw your work and I thought, okay, this is exactly what I can do and I can move it forward. But, you know, it was really based on the early work you had been doing. So what's it like to come here to Apple Shop this many years later and to see this work? Now AMI is reaching its 30th year. We're getting really close to our 30th year. And Apple Shop has just started this culture hub work, which is embedding itself within communities. So what is it like to come back and to see this lineage kind of move forward? Well, you know, I would say that this lineage started before me or before Elizabeth. And, uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and so, so, you know, I, I think it's, it, you know, it's, it's continuous and we all build on, on something. I think the thing for me was that it was, I mean, I knew what I wanted to do when I got here. You know, Liz knew what she wanted to do when she got here. And, and so I think I feel grateful that I had this time and this space and these colleagues to work together on something. And, you know, it was it was hard to leave that, actually, and, and be on my own to do it. So to be able to come back, that's a really great thing because it doesn't mean I have to cut off that experience or that time. And I think it's too bad that people don't have that continuous experience and also don't know where things came from. I'm not talking about Apple Shop, but the part that I don't like is that people now sort of feel like they have to think that they invented, and it's very proprietary. <laughs> and this whole idea of branding that, you know, this is yours, this is what you're putting out. Whereas, you know, from, from the history of art, you know, everything is built on everything else. It's very true. 
We were talking about that earlier. Yeah, even with painting, you know, you had apprentices painting the backgrounds of <laughs> master's work. And one of the things that I was reading um, when looking through some of your photos was that the author's opinion on that particular blog was that your work blurs that idea of copyright. Who is the artist? Who does that belong to, if anyone? Especially, they were mentioning the pictures where you would take a picture and a child or someone else would write on the picture. Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in that concept. I mean, I suppose I clarified it as, as I got older and, you know, sort of could look at it from afar. But there was a really nice essay that Declan McGonigal, who's a curator in, in Ireland, wrote about this process, how far it has been going on, and that this new form of art is really not new at all, just like you're saying. To me, that's much more interesting <laughs> that the idea that it's been something that it's human beings, you know, we've done and we've wanted that connection. And also, as you guys know, I think a lot of this is a reaction to how self-centered art had become and self-referential. But still, I feel like people have not learned how to write about it and analyze it. And it's sort of in the danger of going in the same direction, becoming very self-centered, so that the social practitioner and what the social practitioner sees and lines it out is the most important thing. Or it becomes a kind of something that people replicate rather than you know bring their own and the people they're working with their own experiences to it. I know at the time you were here in Appalachia, had you not been here with this idea, those children would have never made those images. And I know one of the quotes from that time period is that you had said you were helping the children to see. And that struck me too. I thought, well, see what, first off, but the fact that it's a collaboration without you they wouldn't have made these images. The idea of ownership is nil, really. It belongs to the people. Yeah. One of the things I, I think, rather than to see almost what I, because that's sort of everybody sees, yeah. <laughs> and everybody has a way of seeing, but is to appreciate what they're seeing. It's been true in different places that people haven't known what to take pictures of at first. Here, anyway, people are so, like, you take pictures of the birthday party or these special occasions, but not to appreciate the way that your everyday life, how it unfolds. And I think that's what's exciting to have seen then. And it's also exciting now to talk to them now and to see how that way of using pictures or taking pictures has integrated, has been integrated into their lives now. It's sort of twofold. I mean, I guess learning to see in the sense that now seeing the baby pictures of one of the the kids that I worked with, I'm mean, seeing the pictures he took of his children being born. They're not like any pictures of births that I've I've seen by you know by parents. You know, it's very nitty gritty, and uh, I mean, you really feel what it's like for that little thing to come out in the struggle. That's really exciting. That way of looking hard at something and figuring out how to portray it is not something that goes away. 
Yeah, I think sometimes when we just experience day-to-day -day life, we can forget that those simple things are so very important. And I know that for myself, had I not been brought to an awareness that all these pieces fit together and each and every piece is important and interesting, I don't think I would be able to be sitting in this chair right now having a voice. Yeah. It's almost like in that tool they gained a freedom of expression that you can't then push away. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's a part of how you see things or how you piece together things. Mm -hmm. I don't know how old I was or whatever, but I remember thinking that if I could really concentrate on something and what it looked like, you know, I could bring myself to another place of appreciation, but also of feeling connected to the world. That's interesting. I would do that with words. I would repeat them over and over until the words sounded different and see all the depths. Mm -hmm. It's the same idea, yeah, I think. Yeah. You are listening to Mountain Talk Monday, and I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, and I'm here with guest host Kate Fowler and photographer and artist Wendy Ewald. And we are talking about culture and photography and how seeing our world through a lens can open up many new doors for us. Kate? A lot of days I come, I go home and I just, I have a lot of guilty pleasures, like what I look at and what I read to kind of release myself from the work I'm doing, because sometimes it can be tough work when you're working yeah. with youth. And I wanted really badly to hear about the photography that you look at just for pleasure. <laughs> You know, when I was, uh, like when I was working here, I, I think, you know, it's been different, you know, different times, but I would always look at Emmett Gowan's pictures, for example, which are, you know, made in, in, in rural Virginia of one family, of his family. And then I had a wonderful teacher, Wendy McNeil. She was my teacher in high school, um, and I was so lucky to have her, but she's a portrait photographer but in many using portraiture in many different ways and she also incorporated snapshots into the work that she did but mostly what I was really interested in them and what really influenced me was sort of the depth of feeling and the depth of understanding that I felt from those pictures and also you know how they use the camera and in both cases they worked with large format cameras. So so that's, you know, what I started with and have come back to is that, I know this is sort of getting off the topic, but it, it it's really relational. When you have a big camera and, you know, you've got it on a tripod and it takes a long time and you've got the person in front of you, I mean, first of all, you, you think, oh my God, they're going to get tired. This is, you know, I'm so slow. And... As one of my neighbors in, in Ingrams Creek said, I was like an old hen trying to make her nest when I tried to, when I was making a, uh, a picture and setting up the where I wanted to be. I guess I discovered that one of the pleasures of working with large format is to get really to look. You know, you're looking at this ground glass, and you never have the ex you know experience of just like you know looking into your face. Mm -hmm. So you know, not in a voyeuristic sense, but it's communication back and forth, and also that allows the person or the people to do whatever it is they want to do. I mean, I would never tell somebody you know put your hand there or sit you know that way, but you let people settle in 
to who they want to be at, at the same time. But now, you know, I really like to look at pictures a lot of times that weren't made by photographers. I don't know, it, in, in a place where, I know in the last project that I did, um, Emmett Gowan, again, this photographer, said to me when, when he saw the work, and it was a work of a lot of different photographers, he said, your work is the least guarded aesthetically. <laughs> what I took him to mean is that, you know, I wasn't using some kind of fixed lens to look at something that was, that was difficult. And I like to really look at painting, too, a lot. And I have done that a lot over the years. I don't know. I, you know, I get bored sometimes by photography. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still find yourself today, like, is there ever a moment when you're out and you just have a desire to take a picture and it could be connected to no context in your mind? You just want to make a photograph. Yeah, I do. For me, that's the one great thing about camera <laughs> is I'll do that now. You know, I'll let myself do that. It's it's a pleasure of my pleasure of of seeing my everyday whatever it is. So I'm I'm grateful for that because it's you know I never think of using it for anything, but um, who knows? <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs> It also seems like language is so embedded in the work that you do, and I wanted to hear a little bit more about the experience of having come from working in cultures where you can communicate with young folks to having to work in cultures where maybe someone else is communicating for you. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to speak Spanish, and that's helped me in other places, and I understand French, but there's so there's many places I've worked, like in India, in India, particularly, is, is is a good example. And I did study Hindi before before I got there, but I ended up working in a Gujarati village. So, you know, some things were helpful, but not a lot. And in that case, I had a translator, well, I guess a translator and collaborator, who she and I lived together in the village. But still, you know, there were nights when we would hang out with the family, and I would never want to interrupt the flow of the conversation, so I would not really ask what, what was going on. And I'm pretty good at interpreting things and sort of picking it up, but obviously I miss so much. So in that case, what I did, I interviewed the kids, and I had written down like five questions, basic questions, which Darshna, who was working with me, asked them. And then if there was something that, you know, was like really striking, she would stop and say, you know, and then I, and I would ask another question. And then at night, we were living in this mud house, and, you know, there really wasn't anything to do at night, and there was no electricity <laughs> or anything. She would translate, you know, every night um, what we heard on the tape. So in the cases in Morocco, too, I did a lot of tapes. So in those cases, you know, that really helped a lot, tape recording, and then having, having the people I was working with um, mm -hmm. translated back. But it doesn't allow me to enter into conversations. That's hard because I, I love those conversations and the way people are using languages and metaphor and all that stuff. You've been looking at images for such a long time that I was interested to hear how you would answer this, but I was wondering if you could, for everybody, just verbally describe an image that one of your students has made that's had the most impact on you. Just kind of walk us through what that photograph looks like. 
Mm, there's so many. <laughs> I mean, there's so many. It's easy to talk yeah. about, uh, about, but, but, and I think there's those things in text too, those images in text too. But I, I guess I'll talk about being here. And there was one photographer, Denise Dixon, who from very at the first was was able to use a camera with a distinct vision, and she had a distinct subject matter, which was herself and her twin brothers for the most part and she did still lives too and she made a a series of pictures of herself dancing which she called reaching for the red star sky and she lived in red star she set up a record player in the basement with the music she wanted to dance and then she was dancing outside and she had her friend michelle in front of her and when she would say now, then Michelle would, would click the shutter. And she, there is a piece of the, um, the building, where the, or it's the, you know, the basement, so it's, it's painted, it's concrete painted, coming at an angle in one side. And on the other side, she is, is dancing really freely. So it's this kind of a, really a beautiful ab- abandon. And then there are the mountains in the, in the background. And the gestures are, are just, or the way she's dancing is just amazing. In one, she's got her head to the, to the sky, and she's got her arms back. And, you know, you just feel that what it's like to be somebody that age, you know, just giving your body to the world, or you're, you know, you're, you're just so free. And so that's something that I think about. And, and I know what it affects, has affected other people as well. Another one that she took, which it goes to the other spectrum, is one of her dreams in which she imagined her brothers were creatures from outer space, and they're sitting in a big armchair. Each one has their ha- hand on another arm of the chair, and then uh, there's newspaper behind them, and they're, they don't have any shoes on, so their little toes are facing forward, and then they have stockings over their heads which you can't tell they're stockings, but it's just, you know, they're very alien-looking <laughs> looking faces. And she entitled it The Creatures from Outer Space in Their Spaceship. One of the things I taught them is, is if you make a title, then you can, you know, direct an audience to see what it is you were trying to do. And it's a just, it's a, it's a wonderful picture. And she's so intentional with everything that she does that if you look at the contact sheets um, from that time and the different shots around it, you know, she's trying different materials over their faces. And, you know, this was the one that finally worked. I think they really also taught me how to be much more flexible, dynamic, not worry about technical perfection, Etc. And and also their sense of composition was was remarkable. She's incredible, and we have a poster from that book hanging outside of here on Ada's office, and it's Denise Dixon dancing, and it's two pictures, and it's one of my favorite. And the boys in that second image have their noses just like pressed totally flat to their face, and at first you're kind of taken aback because you can't see the stockings or the pantyhose on their heads, but I love those photographs too. <laughs> well, one thing that was funny about that was we had a, um, an exhibition at the University of Kentucky, you know, while I was still working with them, and uh, so we took the bus up, a uh, school bus up, and uh, some parents and, and the kids went, and 
and uh, Denise's mother went. And Denise's mother was always very supportive of her work. She really liked it. And so, but she stood next to that picture of the boys, um, the whole opening of the exhibition to tell everybody who came to look at it that her children really didn't look that way. (laughs) (laughs) Now that kind of brings it back to one of the things I watched Andrew Garrison's Mm -hmm. film Mm -hmm. about the making of Portraits and Dreams. And you talked with Denise about the dancing picture. And you said, well, how do you feel about yourself in this picture? She's like, I look terrible. That really struck me because I thought she looked so beautiful. I thought to myself, well, we're obligated to say that we look terrible. I'm like, they must have been feeling that at that point too. Starting to see images from the outside being projected back at ourselves and then looking at images we make that, as you pointed out, when we're photographing the reality, aren't going to be that dissimilar and saying that's really what it looks like. Yeah, I think particularly, I mean, she was a teenager at Mm -hmm. the time and she was maybe separated by a couple of years from, you know, when she, or a year when, when she took that photograph to when she said that. I think almost everybody would say that. Yeah. <laughs> Out of obligation. Like, if yeah. we said we and looked also, good. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like, I look well. fabulous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, I think there's just a sense of self-consciousness that whatever it is that you look like, it's like, you know, not maybe what you, <laughs> you'd hoped you looked like. You're probably aware of the series that Voss is doing about Central Appalachia in photography. They're doing a series, and there's several different contributors, but the first series that I saw was of addiction mm. and looking at the realities of addiction. And I was part of a conversation where someone had said, well, look at what they chose to photograph. And I looked through the photographs, and I read the text, And I realized there's nothing wrong with these photographs. And I thought, well, how would it have been different if they had given the addicts the camera? Sometimes looking at the reality of things when you're trying to hide that in your Mm -hmm. mind Mm -hmm. can be very jarring. And I think that's one of the important things of dealing with stereotypes from your own perspective Because coming to the realization that there's truth in all stereotypes, it comes from somewhere. So who better to portray it? And I have a friend who's never been to Appalachia. And he'll ask me questions like, do women wear their pajamas to Walmart? And and things like that. And I'm like, huh, well, yes, I do. (laughs) Or, you know, he'll see a picture of someone on my page and be like, is that man violent? He looks violent. And I'll have to explain, well, no, no, (laughs) you know, but it is in a different, totally different sense. Not being from Appalachia. How do you feel about the work that you produced while here? And did allowing the children to take those pictures give you more of a freedom in when you presented those pictures to the public? Well, I think, yeah, I, you know, I was very uh, conscious of that there were certain pictures I, I wouldn't use. And I can't even tell you what they are, but it was sort of to to get away from things that I'd I'd seen or I knew would be interpreted in a certain way. 
and, and that's true in any place I've been. Like there was a photograph of of a girl in um, in Mexico, a uh, little girl, and she had a trump line, which you call, you know, you, you, you hang things from your head. That's how you carry things. And so she had a, you know, buckets, you know, on either side, you know, like water buckets. It's a very dramatic image, you know, this little girl with these buckets and then it's black behind her. You know, I could tell that there wasn't water in the buckets just because I know how to look at that picture, but I didn't want to use it because I thought, you know, this is like trodden down Mayan girl. But then the curator I was working with said, oh, got to use it. <laughs> and we did end up using it. But I still feel uncomfortable when I see that that picture because I think it means something. I think it's all about the meaning. What does it mean to the people who are there? And what does it mean to somebody who's coming to it from the outside? I know that I did a lot of TV and radio stuff at one point, And people would you know, that were interviewing me would always show some of these pictures and they would all start talking about poverty. And the first thing I would say is this is not about poverty. That's an outside construct. It's what you guys are looking at, not what these kids are living. And so I think it's a very, I think it's very problematic. And I think you do as much as you can. But I mean, I remember when I first had the Portraits and Dreams book and was like showing my my family and I always think about my family who, you know, are in a suburb, you know, outside of Detroit. They're my audience. You know, if I can get them to see what I'm trying to do, I think, you know, that's a big plus for me. I mean, I know people here will understand it, you know, the layers. But for somebody from the outside to move beyond their stereotypes mm -hmm. is, is really important to me. And another thing that struck me in the same vein was the pictures that the boy had done of the hog killing. I live next to a hog farm and have seen many of those. And the really striking transition in, in the Andrew Garrison film was they had the picture of the hog's head sticking, you know, where <laughs> they had just stuck it up. And the boy that you're talking with that made the picture, he's just like, well, if it was up to me, I'd just eat vegetables. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not what the outsider's going to be thinking when they see that hog's head image. Right. But in his mind, he's like, if it were up to me, I'd just eat vegetables. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And I loved that. How do you, Yeah. I don't know, how do you convey that to well, it, that it's, depth? You know, the, there was a, one book that I did that was sort of particularly came out of that idea and it was during the time when there was a lot of um, talk about photographs of children and you know naked children or whatever people were very worried about that from both sides freedom of expression or you know and I thought well this is kind of ridiculous because this has no one's asked the kids how you know it affects them or what they see or so I did a project called the best part of me where I asked the kids to uh, choose part of themselves, the physical part of themselves that, that they either they liked the best or that they thought represented them the best. And some of the pictures, I mean, like one boy wanted his chest. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we were working with Polaroid, so, you know, he could see it and et cetera. And so I did like do this torso shot of this of this young boy. His belly's sticking out a little bit, so it's not like the perfect <laughs> shot. And then he wrote a poem to go with it. It starts out, chest, chest, you're the best, you're the best in the West. You know, which is like completely different than, you know, somebody who's 
thinking erotically, you know, <laughs> would interpret <laughs> interpret the photograph. So, yeah, I think it's a... It's always the risk when you put art out there is the interpretation can be totally different from your intention. Yeah, it yeah, and, and I think that's why I use words as much as I do and, mm. you know, think about context and, you know, the last project I did was in Israel and Palestine and I and I was trying to figure out you know that's such a those pictures can be interpreted so many different ways I mean any pictures can and 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 people's opinions etc so I wanted to try and do something that kind of broke that way of looking at things either you know pro or con or whatever but I felt like I needed so much material to do it. So like I, I wrote a history of each place that I worked, but from a nonpartisan, it's not nonpartisan, but it's, you know, telling, you know, that this is where they came, this is how they came here, this is what would happen, this is, you know, where they are now in the spectrum of things. And then I did interviews, and then they photographed them all, and I got, you know, pieces of, of um, documentation, um, and that's sort of the extreme to what I've gone as far as context, but um, but it's um, it's an interesting thing to work through. It's a really unruly form. You put all of this effort into building something and building this deep narrative and collaborating for a long period of time and working for years and years and years, and then you put it all into a book and you send it out into the universe. And there's this like implicit trust with the audience that they have to somehow take the time to understand. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, you you can't uh, ex- expect that. And I and I realize, I mean, this this book is not done very well because I think because there's so much in it and, you know, you have to commit yourself to it and, you know, the people who have, I think have gotten a lot from it, but Well, there is also, you know, one thing that was amazing to me is we wanted Elizabeth Baird and I wanted to bring in one of your books to show students in a local uh, high school. And there's a photograph of a boy from the waist, and he's nude, and he's covered in mud. And it's this, like, really playful photograph that I assume his sister had taken or his sibling. Yeah, Denise, yeah. Denise took this picture, and it's beautiful. And Elizabeth and I were joking because we are like, how are the youth in this high school going to handle this photograph? And we thought about, like, putting a piece of black construction paper over it or trying to obscure it. And eventually, we just took the book in, and the kids spent about 45 minutes going through the book and they got to that picture and they were all laughing and saying like, oh, this is just like my brother and he was probably playing in the sewer creek behind the house and this happened to me. And I realized like for us, there was something that we couldn't breach with that photograph. There was some internal discomfort as adults that we were doing something wrong, that we were putting something on a child, that it was inappropriate. But then when we just gave them the book, it was like all of that, um, context was stripped away and it was just a kid playing in the mud and it was really kind of a joyful moment for the both of us because it, it taught me something about trusting young people mm-hmm. yeah. how, how better to get at the truth of a culture than to see it through the eyes of the children within it yeah. they're not going to have the same qualms as adults will about what they photograph absolutely yeah I, I think that's um yeah, I think that's why I called. I did a retrospective book, which I called "Secret Games," and that sort of refers to that. That it's, you know, they know it's something that, um, you know, that they can do, but you know, maybe they're not supposed to show it to the adults. But, um, 
but here's the chance to, you know, say what they want to say. Yeah. And, and also look at what they're fascinated by. They would take a picture of something that we would shy away from. Thinking about your explanation of how you handled the Palestine story um, and the idea that history is in the textbooks told from the, the eyes of the victorious or the winner, and just thinking about how the, the winner's story is valid, but so is everyone's in between. Having photography, we really do have a wonderful way to capture history in a more real sense now, I think, than we did just through writing. Yeah, and of course it has to, you know, you can use a photograph to, you know, support the winners or the losers. <laughs> <laughs> so again, you come back to getting as much truth around it as you can, right. so it can be interpreted. Kate, do you have any final questions? Millions, so I'll probably cut myself off here. <laughs> but it's just, it's such a joy and an immense honor for me. And I've been just looking forward to you being here for so long. It's really exciting for everybody. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you guys, because, I mean, it's it's been so exciting for me both to go and work with young people now and see their struggles and what is meaningful to them now, but also to go back and see the students that I worked with in the 70s and hear from them what it meant to them to make pictures and also, most importantly, to see where they've gone and what their lives have been like. I, too, want to say thank you for taking the time out to come and speak with us. And I had one final question, and I think this is something that many artists deal with, and that's winning awards. You've won multiple prestigious awards, and seeing your work the way that you describe it and the way others describe it, how does it feel to win those awards, and what purpose do you think they serve? Well, I think for me it's been really important because I was doing something that I don't think people valued that much, and also I didn't really have any where to go, I mean, way to make money or, you know, know where I was going to go. And so I think it really gave me the opportunity to get to a place where I could make a living teaching and continue to do work. But it's also, as, as you're suggesting, I think it's got its downsides <laughs> in that, you know, that people think, well, well you're, you feel at the beginning anyway at least when i i got a macarthur fellowship i felt like why me and um you know this is really great but i felt guilty i think this is what what happens and i was fortunate enough to that there was a friend who lived down the street from me who got one the same year who was a romanian writer and so he and I sort of, it, <laughs> when we had dinner or something, we get in the corner and we talk about <laughs> our weird feelings that no one I could not talk about with anybody else. There is a really profound uh, documentary about Sally Mann. And you just see that she's this photographer who so deeply internalizes her work and the experience of making it. And she had been planning for this exhibition, and then at the last minute it gets pulled because her work is too controversial. And it's like, 
the intensity of the moment in that film where she's just like sitting and crying and you realize that she's this photographer who's won a lot of awards and has been named like 2012 best photographer in the world and she's just weeping because her work is pulled at the last moment it made me realize that there's no matter where you are in your career, always moments that can kind of set you back mm-hmm. and pull you back and mm-hmm. remind you oh, definitely. that it's fallible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anytime yeah. you're working in the humanities, I think it's that way. You can be mm-hmm. right there one second and the yeah. next second. Yeah, no, no, you, it's over. To keep going is no mean task. Well, that brings us to the conclusion of this Mountain Talk Monday. I've been your host, Kelly Haywood, and I appreciate you joining us, Kate. Thank you, Kelly, for asking me. Yeah, Yeah, it's been fun. And Wendy Ewald, thank you for taking time out to speak with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.